the investment in the Caribbean, one challenge we have is that we are telling investors, come and invest in the Caribbean. But we don't have projects. So we need to have shovel-ready projects for investors. And if you are dollarized to use your term and you don't have those projects, it makes zero difference. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Caribbean Progress with me, Rashid Griffith. Today, I am joined by Diodat Maharaj. He is the Executive Director of the Caribbean Export Development Agency, the Caribbean Regional Institution, with the remit to support private sector growth through export and to steer foreign direct investment to the Caribbean. Maharaj is a national of Trinidad and Tobago. He previously served as the Deputy Secretary General of the Commonwealth, where he spearheaded the trade and investment agenda. He also served with the United Nations in senior roles in the field and at the headquarters. We had a fantastic, wide-ranging conversation on all the things that Caribbean Export Development Agency does and plans to do to spur growth in the Caribbean. It was a really fun episode. Let's just dive right in. So thank you so much, Mr. Maharaj, for coming on the podcast today. No, a great pleasure to join you on this podcast, Rashid. I'm quite excited about what we're going to talk about. So Caribbean Export is a pretty important agency in Caribbean, but it's not that well known to most people. Before we get any further into the conversation, could you give an overview of what Caribbean Export does and what it hopes to do? Caribbean Export is a regional organization comprising CARICOM countries plus the Dominican Republic with a market size of around 27 million people. And our job is to promote Caribbean trade globally. So to get our goods and services on international in international markets, to earn foreign exchange and create jobs for our people, and also to help steer investment, foreign direct investment into the Caribbean. How do we do our work? We do our work working day in, day out with businesses and where it matters on the ground. So we work directly with the private sector to boost their capacity to access new export markets, to expand market share in existing export markets, and try to get foreign direct investment and stimulate regional investment right here in the Caribbean. The difference between Caribbean export and other regional organizations is that for us at Caribbean export, we work where it matters on the ground, directly with micro small and medium scale, and even large businesses. So when they grow, Rashid, jobs are created and opportunities are created for Caribbean people. Why is it that there needs to even be a Caribbean export agency as a collective? Why is it that the governments themselves, for the Caribbean country, shouldn't be able to promote their investment criteria but themselves? Most countries, if not all of the Caribbean countries, they actually have investment promotion agencies. They also have export promotion agencies. The challenge is that I worked in Asia Pacific, I worked in Africa and different places. And as much as we believe we are very important in the Caribbean, Rashid, and we are. But the fact is, I, my last posting in the UN was Mozambique. And nobody knew about Trinidad and Tobago I am from in Mozambique. They don't, they know perhaps know about Usain Bolt and Jamaica and maybe Reggae. But most of our countries don't have that brand recognition. So there's a lot of virtue in leveraging economies of scale, pooling the resources together to promote the Caribbean as a region because brand Caribbean or a brand that's absolutely Caribbean has more name recognition than brand Sun Kitts 
Anivas or brand Grenada or even brand Trinidad and Tobago in a market like Indonesia or a market like Japan or a market like even in China. The value of Caribbean export is that we profile and promote and give visibility to the Caribbean. So when we take, so an individual country may not be able to afford four, five, six trade missions to Europe, or we were in a recent trade mission to Africa, to Ghana, Nigeria, just in June of this year. But when we pool our resources together, we can do it in a more organized and systematic manner, try and get results for our businesses. And why are we doing that, Rashid? Because we want to create jobs and opportunity for Caribbean people. So you say pool resources, what is the funding structure of Caribbean export? Is it an independent CARICOM entity or how does the funding structure work? Okay, so we have 15 member countries and our member countries contribute financing to our work. But that represents a small percentage of our total financing. We have been working over the last two decades or so with the European Union, which has provided a lot of financing, enabling our businesses to access the highly lucrative half a billion people European market. Now we have a partnership with the Caribbean Development Bank. We have been working with the Inter-American Development Bank, Expertise France, and other partners as well, because we recognize that one, we can't do it alone. Secondly, the resources coming from government, that those resources are not sufficient for sure. And to really do meaningful work and to have a lasting impact, you need much more resources. Hence the reason we have these strategic partnerships, including with the private sector. So Republic Bank, for example, the largest indigenous bank in the Caribbean, is that we have an MOU with Republic Bank, as an example. So what are some of the biggest success stories of recent that Caribbean export has been able to increase either the export or investment induction in the Caribbean? So I think it's always good to tell stories, Rashid, and your listeners, I think, certainly will appreciate that. And I can, I would like to talk about Nalido. Nalido is a company that does organic turmeric in Belize. Nalido, we've been working with them for a bit over two years, enabling them to understand the packaging requirements for the EU market, the labeling requirements, phytosanitary requirements, all the boring stuff. Take took them to trade shows in Europe. And last year, for the first time, Nalido got an order for a container of organic turmeric to the European market. They were able to penetrate that market. Secondly, they have secured orders as well for Ireland. So think about it. This small Belizean company that was producing organic turmeric of high quality, okay, they have access to a highly lucrative market. And they have now started to contract firms to supply them with organic turmeric. So think about a small in a small community, you're creating 50 or 100 jobs, earning 10, 20 million United States dollars in foreign exchange. That's concrete and that's practical, earning precious foreign exchange and creating jobs. We had our Caribbean Investment Forum in Port of Spain, Trinidad over the period 9 to 11 November last year. The next one is in the Bahamas and I hope I can talk about that as well. We had a business process outsourcing company from out of the region coming, meeting the people in Dominica. And look, within 10 months, they have set up shop in Dominica. They have already hired 30 or 40 people. They'll hire a couple hundred people. That's another good example. We got UTEL, which is a business process outsourcing company out of Jamaica, to meet the people in St. Lucia and set up a shop in St. Lucia where they have hired, I think, at least 900 people. Rashid, this is concrete. This is practical. This work is generating jobs and generating and supporting livelihoods. It's not about the employees, but the fact is that each employee has a family of three or four, right? At least. 
it sounds like a lot of the work of Caribbean export is very private sector oriented. Is that a fair interpretation? Yeah, we work with governments as well, but our job is to support trade, get investment by working with business. What has been some of the major roadblocks you found that most, it's a large chunk of small companies in Caribbean have been facing when it comes to even growth internationally? We, so it's better to get the perspective of businesses, right? So together with CDB at the height of the COVID pandemic, we did a survey together with CDB of 450 or so micro, small and medium scale enterprises. And they said their biggest obstacle is actually access to finance. So that's one. Secondly, based on the data and the evidence that we have and that we know of, the business environment in the Caribbean is quite difficult. It's very difficult to do business in the Caribbean. In the last World Bank's ease of doing business report, with the exception of Jamaica, which was around in the mid-60s, and St. Lucia, which was in the mid-90s, out of 200 countries globally, Caribbean countries were in the bottom half of those 200 countries. We are making progress, so it's easier now to register a business. In many jurisdictions, they have decided they're using online platforms rather than going in person. We still have a long way to go, but the lack of finance is a big issue. And that is why we are having our Caribbean Investment Forum, the last one in Port of Spain, the next one, 23rd to 25th in, at the Atlantis Resort in the Bahamas this year. And what we are focused on is getting projects, Rashid, and getting investors to invest money in those projects. We recognize the problem, but to recognize the problem and do nothing about it is not a way you're going to get a solution and effect change and transformation. So that is why CaribbeanInvestmentForum.com over the period 23rd to 25th of Bahamas is addressing this precise issue of unlocking finance for projects that could drive transformation in the Caribbean. To dive in a bit more on that, why is it, you can see core why they cannot get the easy access to finance? It wasn't the driving factors there. Well, there are various reasons. One is the cost of capital is high. Cost of financing is high, especially for micro-entrepreneurs. Secondly, many of the micro-entrepreneurs, they're not formal businesses. They're part of the informal sector. So you need to transition from informal to formal to have the documentation required to go to the bank to get the loan. And that's why the ease of doing business environment is important because you have to make it easy for people to register a business. And when they register a business, certainly for micro-entrepreneurs, to have special purpose funding programs available so they can get capital at minimal cost. So at least you give them that start. And you have many models out across the world. You have the Grameen banking model in Bangladesh, which was quite an unusual model when it was conceptualized. But now it's like a rock star in terms of innovative microcredit schemes for small entrepreneurs. So some would say our question, why would Caribbean export even focus on such small micro businesses in the first place? Why not focus on higher up the chain in limited resources? and hire out the chain, people actually already have products, already have services, doesn't need more expansion. Why actually go so far down the business chain, essentially? So let's look at the data, Rashi. We should be evidence-driven. So when you look at the data for businesses in the Caribbean, 70% of the businesses are either micro, small, or medium-scale enterprises. They account for around 70 to 75% of employment in the Caribbean. They account for around 55 to 60% of the region's GDP. So if you want to drive transformation and drive economic growth, you have to focus on where the majority of the businesses are. 
that does not necessarily mean we shouldn't focus on large business because on the export side, we do a lot of work with businesses that are already well established to help them penetrate new markets. But if we just ignore the micro, small and medium scale enterprises, that's to our deep peril because they comprise the bulk of businesses in the Caribbean. And it's remember, it's not only businesses that are producing goods. Cocoa, coffee, or rum, or tobacco, or sugar cake, or condiments. It's about businesses that are producing services. The business of music, the business of creativity, the business of culture, right? Accounting services. So that is why it's so critically important for us to have a good understanding of the nature of business enterprises. Because if we just say we focus on the well-established one, Rashid, you're leaving out 70% of your people accounting for 70% of employment. So what's going to happen? The way to go is to give that attention to those businesses and to make sure they are fit for purpose. And what we are doing at Caribbean Export, we are really leveraging innovation and digitalization and technology. So Tefara's technology is a great democratizer in business. Eh? And what technology does, it creates a level playing field. So at the height of the COVID pandemic in your country, Rashid, Barbados, and I'm based here, so it's my country as well. I'm from Trinidad and Tobago. And you know what was happening? Farmers, they were selling lettuce and cucumbers online in Barbados in Trinidad and Tobago. They never did that before. So now at Caribbean Export, we are creating what we call a virtual export accelerator platform where businesses can showcase their products online because we don't have the Amazon equivalent here in Barbados or anywhere in the Caribbean. But we know if we create opportunities and provide a platform for businesses, they will take advantage of it. What are the reasons that these small, call them informal businesses, are not transitioning? So yes, we, we hear that it is difficult to do business in the Caribbean, but what is actually making it difficult to do business in the Caribbean? So one, the process of registering a business. People prefer to remain in the informal sector because A, it's difficult to register or it may be difficult to register. Or B, when you register, you have to pay taxes. But the advantage of registering is that even though you have to pay taxes, you have access to credit. So one issue is many prefer to remain in the informal sector or they remain because they have no other choice. That's one. That the second challenge to transition is because of limited market size. Meaning, if you're in St. Kitts and Nevis, you're looking at a market of 55,000, you're living in a community, a village, a small market. If you're in Grenada, it's the same. If you're in Antigua and Barbuda, the same. If we think a region, the Caribbean as a region, and I spoke about CARICOM countries and the Dominican Republic, the market size is 27 million. It's a different market size altogether. When we think about Barbados and you think about a market of 375,000, that's totally incorrect, Rashid, because the market isn't 375,000 Barbadians. The market is the 375,000 Barbadians plus the 1.2 million tourists that come here every year. So if you're a farmer and you think about lettuce production or poultry production or egg production, your concept of the market has to be much bigger than your community or your parish or the residents on the island. And plus you have a regional market. So we have to think differently as entrepreneurs. So we need to have training programs to help our entrepreneurs to think differently with respect to market size. And also the issue of investing in product development. So for example, I spoke about the European market as a highly lucrative market of half a billion people, but they're very much into organic products and certification and our businesses are not certified. So that's why we have to work with them to help them to become certified so they can access these markets. 
So they're uncertified because they're not formal companies that went through the process or just that they are formal companies and some of them but still have not been certified. Yeah. So for the micro entrepreneurs, they're constrained in terms of their market size is limited or they just focus on a small market. That's one. Second, for businesses, let's say you do pepper sauce anywhere in the Caribbean, Jamaica or St. Lucia, for example, and you're satisfied with the market in St. Lucia. So you're not exporting. You can go to the market and you can sell and that's good for you. You go to the grocery store. But if you have to move to the next level now, then you need the certification. So some people are content and they're happy with making X amount of dollars. But when you build awareness of the potential of profit and employment and resilient prosperity because of these new opportunities, then you have the impetus to become certified. But you have Baron Foods, for example, from St. Lucia. Baron Foods has a factory in Grenada as well. They have over 40 product lines, about more than 40 products, and they export to more than 45 countries. And if they can do it right, then anybody can do it. But they had a plan. Set up shop, satisfy domestic market, expand to regional market, build another factory in Grenada, exporting to Europe, exporting to North America. Many of your examples are very agricultural food specific. And on the other side, there is a lot of very highly educated population that's very underemployed or worse unemployed, but definitely underemployed. What is Caribbean export doing, if it is, to kind of service that kind of talent well in the Caribbean? So we have in our strategic plan, Rashid, we focus on one, export, two, investment, and three, services, which I spoke about earlier in the podcast. Because we believe that services represent the next frontier for Caribbean business. We have had programs to help our business, our musicians transition from being crop over artists or Mashramani artist in Guyana or a Junkanu artist in the Bahamas or a carnival performer to being a business person, establishing a business, making sure you secure your intellectual property, leveraging technologies such as Spotify and YouTube so you can upload your content and make money wherever you are. We have worked closely with the Coalition of Service Industries in Trinidad and Tobago in Barbados because we believe, as I said earlier, the importance of packaging and commoditizing intellectual property and knowledge, whether it's accounting, whether it's in other technical services. So business process outsourcing, I spoke about the example of St. Lucia. I spoke about the example of the company that established in Trinidad and Tobago as well. These are examples of companies that are establishing that's leveraging the knowledge of our people. Our literacy rate is 95%, meaning that we have a fantastic university uh, system. I'm a proud graduate of the University of the West Indies. It's a world-class institution. So we are churning out high-quality graduates so that knowledge can be commoditized and exported. And that's why, for us, knowledge in terms of services represent the next frontier for Caribbean business. What have you seen as the main investments or foreign direct investment trends in the Caribbean last decade or so? And then what kind of foreign direct investment are you trying to essentially enhance when it comes to Caribbean? The Caribbean is a premier tourist destination. So investments, certainly in the Eastern Caribbean, Barbados, Jamaica, tend to be a lot in the tourism sector. That's one. Save for Trinidad and Tobago, which has an energy-based economy, and now Guyana, oil-based economy. I believe that whereas tourism will continue to be the mainstay or a big portion of the economies of much of the Caribbean, I think that what COVID-19 has taught us, what 9-11 taught us, is that you become so vulnerable, Rashid. 
because there were no tourists during COVID. Then our economies were in a state of extended shock, an extensive shock. For us at Caribbean Export, we have to get investments that could drive transformation of our region, to create jobs and opportunity for our people. So we are focusing on four sectors. One, green economy transition. As the most climate vulnerable region on the planet, together with the Pacific, a green economy transition is not an option for us. It's an imperative. But also, it represents a big opportunity. The International Labour Organization and the IDB, the Inter-American Development Bank, did a a survey. And they said that a green economy transition in the Caribbean will result in the creation of an additional 400,000 jobs. So take, for example, we're going to have electric vehicles. You have to have people who will service those vehicles. That's a high-paying job. You have people who would have to install the charging stations, who would have to service the charging stations. High-paying jobs. We're going solar across the Caribbean. Who's installing those panels? Who will be servicing them? Okay, can we manufacture them here? So a green economy transition is vital first. The second area is agriculture, but leveraging technology in agriculture. We are the most food insecure region on the planet. We have a market size of 27 million people. In 2019, we had 31, 32 million tourists. So that's a big market when you add tourists as well. And for us, agriculture provides a unique opportunity if we treat it as a business to create hundreds of thousands of jobs in the region. And that is why for us, getting investment in agriculture is critical. The third has to do with innovation, digitalization, and technology. If our businesses don't go in that region and we don't embrace technology, quite frankly, we'll be left out. And that is why we need investments in this, in that sector. And the last area we're focusing on is transport and logistics. There's no way that I should be paying $450, $500 to go from Barbados to Trinidad and Tobago round trip, which is a 35-45 minute journey. I shouldn't be paying $400, $500 to go from Barbados to Grenada round trip. That's 35 minutes. Or St. Lucia, the cost of travel in the Caribbean is exorbitant. We can't have a unified and resilient Caribbean if all people can move freely and it's not affordable to travel. So that is why investment in transport and logistics would be critical. So to recap, the priority sectors that could drive transformation, that's what we are about, are one, getting investment in the green economy, two, agriculture, Three, innovation, digitalization, and technology, and four, transport and logistics. And that's why the Caribbean Investment Forum.com in the Bahamas, 23rd to 25th of October this year, or just next month, will be focusing on those sectors and getting investors to come and first to present projects on these sectors. Because I'm convinced, Rashid, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we have an option. It's business as usual or the opportunity to drive a truly transformational agenda for our region to create jobs and opportunities for our people wouldn't be voting with their feet. I agree that agriculture, of course, is very important. But when you say agriculture, do you have a focus on the larger islands, the larger countries, Belize, Guyana, Suriname, so on? Because in small countries, you can't increase your food security, essentially, by doing domestic agriculture because there's just no space at all. So when you say that kind of food security, agriculture, are you having a focus on like Guyana, for example? Actually, no. And I have a different view from you, Rashid. And agriculture, we're focusing on agriculture, but with an emphasis on ag tech or leveraging technology in agriculture. Whereas we have the wide open space of Belize, Suriname, Jamaica, to a lesser extent, and Guyana, and perhaps Trinidad and Tobago, by leveraging technology in agriculture, you can mass produce one notion of lettuce in Grenada, St. Lucia, Antigua, Trinidad, wherever in the Caribbean, is lettuce on the ground. Think lettuce using hydroponics technology as a skyscraper. So that one lot of land 
is exponentially increased because guess what, Rashid? You're going up. You're using six-inch PVC pipes, right? And you're going up. So you don't have one layer of lettuce on the ground. So that's one. So that is why for us, leveraging technology and agriculture is really vital to help us build food security. So that's one. But it's also connected to transport and logistics because the islands are close by. And if you have an effective ferry system transporting goods from Grenada to Trinidad or Trinidad to Guyana or Guyana to South Suriname, it's quite easy, actually, because the distances are not far. So for us, in ag with respect to agriculture, it's about building food security and resilience by one, Leveraging the larger economies, for some stuff you need to have space, massive amounts of space. But Antigua and Barbados or Barbados, you guys stayed at the Hilton when I just came to Barbados and I'm having breakfast at the, at the Hilton here. And everything is imported. Rashid, everything is imported. The banana, the watermelon, the eggs. But isn't the case that things are primarily imported, not because of bad reasons, because they're cheaper? They're imported because... We haven't used technology to drive down the cost of production to be able to compete with the perceived cheaper imported product. That's the reason. Because here in Barbados and tourism-based economy, we are a high-cost tourist destination. So we are not like in places in Africa or Asia. Yeah, I was in Thailand over the summer. And in Thailand, when you go to Cambodia, you go to a five-star hotel, you'd be astonished how much you'd pay for a beer, how much you pay for a meal. In the Caribbean, you pay at least what you would pay in Europe or more. And therefore, the tourist is willing to pay the premium dollar for the premium product, right? So you have a different type of tourist and consumer patterns here in the Caribbean. My view is that if you produce here and you produce in the quantity, the market is readily available. I agree that the tourists are willing to pay for premium organic products, but most people in the Caribbean probably will not be. Even now you see domestic products are not that much, not particularly expensive, but you still go pay for the imported products in the first place. Well, it depends. In Guyana, where I served in Suriname, that's not the case. In Belize, that's not the case. But you talk about imported products. It's always good, Rashita, to give precise examples. So in Trinidad and Tobago, I think Trinidad and Tobago imports like maybe around 20 to 25 million US dollars a month in strawberries and blackberries. Why National of Trinidad and Tobago eating strawberries and blackberry? I can't comment. I like tropical fruits. But I accept that. It's their right to eat whatever they wish. But guess what? There's this company, okay, that's using hydroponics technology that has established a farm in Tobago that's producing strawberry, that's producing blackberry, that's producing blueberry, that they will be able to meet all the import requirements. They've been so successful that they have set up shop in Guyana. I was in touch with Ralph Bulkoff, one of the principals in this enterprise, and he told me they're setting up shop in Antigua and Barbuda now. So that's a very good example of a premium product that's being produced here and using what technology? That's true. And I would say, I guess if we go to a different topic, I do hear a lot of people recently, Caribbean politicians talking about the food import bill. Yes, it is substantially high, but of course it's going to be high. You're a Caribbean country. But the majority of the food import bill has nothing to do with natural produce. It's primarily like Kellogg cereal, primarily like wine from France. That is the cost that really is the very high product of the food bill. So usually when I hear food bill, then they deviate and say, therefore we should grow more strawberries. But that's not the actual big cost in the food bill. But I think if you disaggregate the data in a place like Guyana or a place like Suriname or a place like Belize, they're not known to be places that consume massive quantities of wine, for example. I think the, the food bill, the majority of the food bill would be in basic food stuff. 
cheese from New Zealand, for example, imported rice, imported sugar, imported cereals across the board, and the inputs into making bread and flour and whatever. Some of these things we can produce. So I was at Massey in, in Warren's in Barbados just yesterday. And for the first time, I had an option now. There was breadfruit chips or french fries. You know that you can buy frozen ones, which is good to see, right? Yeah, I'd like to see someone do some detailed research of all the breakdowns of the different food import bills of the Caribbean countries and see what the primary components actually are. That'd be quite interesting. In terms of tourism, you mentioned that during COVID also we had like a slowdown in tourism or a stop essentially <laughs> in tourism. Came to stand still, not a slowdown. But it recovered not that long after the problem was over. And if, for example, the Caribbean countries had a good fiscal budget and had good management, that two-year gap wouldn't have caused such a big problem. So is it that tourism actually is like a thing you need to diversify away from or just you have to get some better management of the money that you earn from the economy? Believe in the age-old wisdom of the term, don't put all your eggs in one basket. I think our ancestors and our grandparents and parents, they knew what they were talking about. Look, you can't have an economy based on one sector. One day it would be COVID, another day might be a 9-11 as we saw, another day it might be hopefully not a global conflict, a financial crisis in your tourist source countries. It makes little sense to just rely on one primary sector. I'm not saying you should stop tourism, by all means you should continue. But let's look at the data on tourism. There's something called local content in most economic sectors. And local content is the amount of local input into the particular industry. In terms of the tourism sector, the Caribbean has the lowest amount of local content in its tourism sector. Less than 10 cents of every dollar a tourist spends remain in the Caribbean. Less than 10 cents. Even though you have a lot of tourists coming, you don't have a lot of money remaining in the country. How is that being calculated? Because I can't fathom how that could be true. It's easy. When you book a ticket, so you're in Panama, you book a ticket to Barbados, nine out of 10 times you're using Expedia. Secondly, you're coming with Copa. Thirdly, you're staying at the Barbados Hilton or a man of your eminence uh, or somewhere in the Platinum Coast. You pay for that in foreign currency, in a hotel owned, overseas owned, that money goes there. So think about that. You rent a car, you rent a car with Hertz or Trifty or whomsoever. What kind of company is that and where is it located? Okay. So you come to Barbados, you take a taxi, you go to your hotel, you just book about the all imported fancy wine. You drink that wine imported from France or California or Chile or Argentina. For dinner, you have steak. We don't produce any steak in Barbados, do you? Then in the morning, we have breakfast. We have strawberries, the strawberries, the blueberry, the pineapple. Then... You're not going to have a Banks or, or a Stag or a Red Stripe early in the morning, right? So you have a beer at 2 o'clock from Banks and Barbados or Carib from Trinidad and Tobago. Then two days you live like that. Then Friday night you go to Oyston. That's the only sector, right? It's one of the big sectors where you have money remaining because the $50 you pay for dinner is remaining in a household. That seems to be a very skewed calculation though because you should never include things like tickets, for example, to come to your domestic no, but tourists, you pay X of dollars as a tourist, Rashid. Sure. So you have to do a calculation of what is remaining in the local economy, whether it's Antigua or Barbados or Grenada. 
But for example, all of the service people, all the hotel workers, they're getting paid somehow. And that's profit from the hotel. That's all your money you're paying to the hotel. You got to include that stuff in calculations and, you know, all kinds of things. Okay. It has to be right because, Rashid, let's take hypothetically a place like Antigua and Barbuda. Your package is 2000 United States dollars. The hotel worker earns 50 US a day. Okay. Cleaning 10 rooms, let us see. So that's like another reason why I prefer community tourism, where tourists go and they stay in a community because more money remains in the community. Now, I am not saying that we should toss out tourism. I'm a big believer in the tourist sector with a lot of local content added. That's one, because it creates a lot of jobs and it creates a lot of employment. But at the same time, at the local level, it creates a lot of low-paying jobs. It creates a lot of low-paying jobs, good for the taxi drivers, and they generate a lot of business. In off-season, what happens then? So that is why we have to focus on sectors that could drive transformation and to leverage the high literacy and training of our people so they can earn high paying jobs. Just as how we want a micro entrepreneur to become a, a small business person to become a medium business person and a medium to become a large. Similarly, we want the hotel worker to transition from working on the grounds to earning a small company that can service the hotels. That's the thinking. I'm not saying to toss tourism. It will be silly to do that. It generates a lot of jobs and opportunity for our people. But we have to, I believe, strongly believe we have to rethink the tourism product. And that's why we have to have sectors that could connect to the tourism sector, where tourism is the main driving sector of a particular economy, where you're connected to agriculture, you're connected to music and culture. So your artists get jobs. So it's not about sun, sea and stand alone. What do you think about dollarization in the sense of Caribbean countries should not have their own currencies, they should just use the US dollar. And this is one benefit of it. It is less hesitation for foreign investors to come in the country because they don't have to worry about currency risk and FX risk and capital controls and so on and so on. Do you think that would be a good business promotion tool that Caribbean could do? Well, a good example is to look at the Eastern Caribbean. The organization of Eastern Caribbean states, I mean, they have an EC dollar, which has worked really well for them. I used to work in the Pacific and you go to Vanuatu, they have their own currency. You go to Tuvalu, they have their own currency. You go to another island next door, Fiji, they have their own currency. It's quite complicated. I see the value of having a common currency. But Rashid, I mean, truth be told, politically and otherwise, it's going to be a very difficult journey to have agreement on one dollar and then you speak about dollarization but i'm not sure dollarization is going to work now the u.s dollar is like the primary global currency but the fact is that the world is changing i mean now the global power shift taking place where india for example now has replaced the uk as the fifth largest economy in the world the chinese economy i mean is competing closely with the u.s economy to see which would emerge as the largest economy on the planet and when you look at the history of civilization and the history of the world you know you have a period where the UK was the primary global power. You had a period where Portugal, you had a period where Spain was the same, right? Then you had the time of the United States. And I believe with time that will change as well. So I think it's better, as Prime Minister Motley said, we are friends of all and satellites of none. Sure, I agree. But let me clarify that comment. Because in terms of dollarization, as it is now, the dollar is the thing that all Caribbean countries invoice exports and imports and investment in. Of course, seven years ago, it was sterling, but we switched to dollar to the causing issues. And then if 
for some reason, in 50 years from now, it will be different currency, then you use that other currency also. The question is more of, do you think instead of having domestic currencies, that if you had a globally globalized currency that has more stability and more trust, that would have a positive impact on the investment portfolio in the Caribbean? I do not think so. The investment in the Caribbean, one challenge we have is that we are telling investors, come and invest in the Caribbean. But we don't have projects. So we need to have a portfolio of projects. So when an investor comes, this is the solar plant I want you to build. This is the land where it will be located. These are the incentives I'm giving you. This is the market size. These are possible financial partners. You could use country X as a beachhead for the whole Caribbean market, for the European market, for Canada, Colombia, Cuba, because we have free trade agreements. So we need to have projects, shovel-ready projects for investors. And if you are dollarized, to use your term, and you don't have those projects, it makes zero difference. Okay, so that's one. Secondly, we need to have an environment that across the board that investors will be attracted to. I was in Kigali, Rwanda last year, in June of last year. And I lived in Tanzania at the height of this terrible genocide that took place in Rwanda. Thousands of bodies were flowing in this river, the border between Tanzania and Rwanda. It was just totally tragic. And in one generation, Rashid, you know, they have transformed that country because they've made it so investment friendly. Claire Kamazi, the head of the Rwanda Development Board, equivalent, I think, to the Investment Promotion Agency, said, you know, I want you people to apply to establish a business and do business here in Rwanda. And I guarantee you that within 16 hours, you'll get a, a response and approval. And we want you to buy Rwandan products. So what we will do, we will email you the certificate so you can use your scarce, um, your limited luggage space to take Rwandan coffee and other products. Here in the Caribbean, we are way behind on some of these matters. In Singapore, you can get within 24 hours to do a business approval. In Mauritius, within 48 hours. Here it can take months. Yeah, I was in Kigali this year and I was blown away by the transformation, rapid transformation, yes. There you go. And they're embracing technology, Rashid. They have like a tech city. You go in the middle of Kigali, they have this in this incubator where young people with their ideas can go and help, can develop products. They can, can talk to businesses who may wish to, to finance their app. It's just fabulous. And what it takes is vision, but vision backed by action, not vision backed by talk. So vision plus action equal transformation. What's your view on the citizenship by investment programs that the five Caribbean countries have? Do you think, I'll just leave it there. What's your view on that? Well, I think that people across the Caribbean, I mean, we need precious foreign investment. And we have tried different routes. I mean, when we tried to establish offshore banking centers, that became an issue. Many of our jurisdictions were blacklisted and we started to look at different ways to get investment and money into our countries. And that's how the CBI, the Citizen by Investment Program, came up. I think it continues to be implemented in many of these countries. My own view is that we need to have a sustained way of attracting investment. And a sustained way of attracting investment is to have priority sectors, to have a portfolio of projects, to build these projects and to have a very targeted and systematic strategy of attracting investment. That is how we work at Caribbean Export and that's how we are going to continue to work. And that type of investment organized in a very systematic manner can generate the jobs that you need at a scale that is required so our people would not vote with their feet. So the last question, what do you think is the 
top three or top one most important policy changes that need to be done to enhance the business environment of most Caribbean countries? I think, one, people should be able to apply and get approval to start a business within 24 hours, at max 48 hours. Thank you so much, Mr. Maharaj. This has been a delightful conversation. Rashid, the pleasure has been mine, and thank you so much. That's all for today. And thank you again for listening to Caribbean Progress. Be sure to follow Caribbean Progress on Twitter at cpsi.org or on our substacks at cpsi.media where you can subscribe for all our latest episodes and also some very good deep dive analysis of Caribbean issues. If you have any questions on today's episode, feel free to contact me on Twitter at Rashid Goa, that's Rashid G or via our progress email, which is progress at cpsi.org. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to see you again in the next episode.